word. And I ask you that this morning that you would help us to understand what we read, that you'd help us to set aside our biases against maybe even some scriptures that will be familiar and help us to hear it afresh and to not only be hearers, but also doers of the word. I thank you for that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week we started with the verse that's on the screen, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Maybe you've gone to church for a long time. And so what happens, the the more time you spend in church, the more prejudice with which you'll treat God. The more you'll be prone to ignore his word in your human nature. And so this is time to let your new man, your spiritual person, wrangle your flesh, grab yourself by the scruff of the neck, and say, who who is God? Who is God? And what is he like? Because this is very relevant to what we're experiencing in the world right now. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Before we go further in the scripture, last week we talked about how this is a safe place for you to feel. And we talked about some of the negative emotions that we feel when we experience current events like this. And we talked about some of those negative emotions where God is feeling the same emotions, which we learn from scripture. We talked a little bit about our response. And many of us communicate with each other that day and throughout the week. But I I wanted to do something a little bit different and actually start this time before we turn to the scripture and open it up to your questions. I want to give you a moment right now. I said it was a safe place for us to feel and for us to have questions. And then we kind of filled all the time. Uh, And I want to give you an opportunity. If you, what is it that you're processing? Is there a question that you, you can't get out of your head about what's going on in Baltimore or about what's going on in the world today. And I don't do this too often, uh, in part because I like for us to go to the scripture with our questions, not a person. Uh, but you all have heard me talk about that a whole bunch of times, so I think we're safe here. So anyone have a question that you think would benefit the group? There's something that you just can't get out of your head over these last couple weeks. Yes, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Whether choosing joy would mean like, will I end up on the other end feeling hopeless as well? Okay. Joy, is it make it yeah. So that's that's relevant. Uh, I'll rephrase his his question uh, partially for the benefit of the recording. Uh, but ironically enough, on the back table by the communion elements is our Bible study. Joy is a choice. So Daniel's asking, is choosing joy ultimately going to end up in me being hopeless? And also, is my choosing joy going to be a negative in my relationship with those who don't know God? Did I get close? You want to add anything to that? 
will choosing joy have a negative impact on your relationship with those who don't know Jesus? Is that a part of what you're wondering? Okay. All right. So, choosing joy, if, this is a good question, and this is a good question because this is a topic that we've been talking about lately and that I have referred to as what I believe a part of the essential DNA of our church. Okay? Joy. And we'll, we'll talk about it in a few minutes as well. Choosing joy, if it is based mostly on natural things and things that are sourced from humanity will leave me hopeless. Because humans in their sin nature will always fail. There will always be cracks in the foundation of whatever they built. That's why we don't put our hope in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or any of that. Human systems without God will fail. Right? So, if I'm putting my joy, if the source of my joy is more than half, is mostly, that's why a, a, a new rendering of one of Peter's words, one of Peter's phrases from the New Testament is, let nothing take the place of you in my heart. If anything, and if when you, those of you, you go to the read through the Bible program, you start to read through the whole Old Testament to slog, there's all this violence and God's really angry and all this other stuff. A huge topic in the Old Testament is worship. Where is the worship of your heart? And if the worship of your heart is on anything other than God, you will ultimately be disappointed. And you'll find out because when you are in a place in your life of being mostly frustrated and and other than, and let me rephrase this, other than a season, okay, because Ecclesiastes says to every, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, to everything there's a season, season to be born, a season to die, right? So there are seasons we go through of more joy and seasons of more sadness, right? And if you're human and if you care about God's purpose in the world and others, this is a discouraging time, this is a sad time, this is a challenging time, right? So other than a season, if in general what goes from a season to being the overarching your life over a number of months is frustrated, discouraged, down, disappointed, then your joy is not primarily in the Lord. Your joy is primarily in anything else. Does that make sense? So the answer to your first question is if your joy is primarily sourced from God. And I got to be honest with you. I don't know how to do that without prayer. Some prayer that's talking, some prayer that's listening. Some prayer that's slow, some prayer that's fast. Some prayer that is lament and some prayer that is celebration. Some prayer that is awe and some prayer that is expressing discouragement. I don't know how to experience joy without prayer without fasting. Fasting, which is not fun, is actually, I think, the the most natural key to the joy in my life and where my joy level changed. Some of you would be aware that two years ago in the summer, I was at a low point. I was exhausted and discouraged, right? This is a church where you can be honest, right? Okay, so in that lull, in that low point, right, I had to use fasting to turn it around. So I don't know how to source joy from God without prayer, fasting, and reading about Him. 
primarily from Scripture and then from other, other Christian sources. That's why I have a book table over there, right? Because I, if I'm not experiencing joy, that means that God is not the biggest thing in my vision. God's not the thing that I see most. The problem is not God. He's the same. He's just as good. You've heard me before ask the question, which I had to ask myself in my own season of my own life, how good does God have to be for me to be happy? He's already given me his best. So when I'm down, it means I'm not looking at him primarily. Now, obviously, what we've talked about before, the flip side of that, is that if I'm more foc- I'm only focused on him and I'm oblivious to other people, well, that's selfishness and that's going to turn into like you're, you're so heavenly focused that you're no earthly good. And then when you get to heaven and Jesus asks you, so what did you do with your life? There's going to be some tears. Because there's accountability. Jesus talks about the accountability that there will be on the judgment day for those who are followers of him. There is still accountability. So the answer to that question is, if God is my primary source of joy, then I will not ultimately have discouragement. Because even in my grandfather, who's in his 80s right now, who's suffering a, a myriad of physical ailments, and they're saying is close to passing away. I was talking to him on the phone last week. And he was, even in his broken down body and the fact that his wife has passed away and all these other things that he's experiencing, all these things that he's learned, but his body is not cooperating with him so that he can continue to work, continue to serve, continue to make use of all these things that he's learned in life. He says that ultimately there is victory in Jesus. And for him, whether it be Jesus' return today or whether it be his graduation into heaven, there is an ultimate joy. There's an ultimate joy that is greater than the suffering he experiences today. And so when I was asking him, Grandpa, you know, he, he pastored for over 50 years. Grandpa, what would you do if you were me? You know, is there, I don't, he's like, just keep your eyes on Jesus. So if Jesus is my ultimate source of joy, and I'm growing and I'm learning, and I'm taking in more about him, then I, it won't result in discouragement and also, it won't be a negative in my relationship with others. Because then, the joy that I'm experiencing is a compassionate, empathetic joy. So where they're discouraged and where they're put down and where they can't see the answers, I can come alongside them, I can listen to them compassionately, and I cannot abuse them with my joy, right? But I can be compassionate, I can listen, I can identify with the things that they're saying that are wrong. We're not, we're not supposed to, we're supposed to ask that God would set the wrongs right, but God doesn't ask us to call the wrongs right. Right? We describe things as they are. Right? So, that enables me to come alongside them and not damage those relationships in that way. But that peace, that serenity should be an overarching principle. Is that helpful? Anyone else? Question? Question? The last couple of weeks, something? Yes, Brian. So, I'm in a season where I'm not feeling God's presence, but I'm seeing the evidence of His work. Yeah. I hear His words in my head and I speak where I think God wants me to speak to others and I see the results of that. But like in my prayer time, in my quiet time, I'm, I just don't feel mm-hmm. God's presence. I see the action, I see His hand at work in my life, I just don't feel it. Yeah. What is, what is going on? Am I doing something wrong? Okay. That's a great question. So what he's saying is, I'm not feeling the presence of God, 
Some of you understand what that means. Some of you might not. I'm not feeling the presence of God. I am seeing him answer prayer. And I am reading his word and praying. And I'm aware that he is alive, you know. But I'm not feeling his presence. So the answer to that question is more than one thing, right? For starters, we have wisdom from God in nature. Each season necessitates the next. It brings the next. In winter things die that need to die so that during the rain of the springs, the good things can come to life so that in the summer they can come to full harvest. So when we go through dry times in our life, it's a season. Now, this speaks to what I talked about with joy. It is helpful to be in community with others so that you can make sure that it's a season and not the rest of your life, right? And then in community, kind of like we talked about this this past week with Celebrate Recovery, in community with others, that's where I can have a pause time and say, God, is there stuff in the way? Is something in the way of me being aware of your presence? Because what we do see in Scripture, and certainly in human history, is that there are times where stuff clouds our spiritual vision, and God will open the spiritual eyes. Where stuff inhibits our spiritual hearing and God removes it and now I can spiritually hear. So there are seasons where, and, and sometimes it's a time to just persist. Uh, there, I'm reminded of a, of a passage in Kings where the word of the prophet came to the people that were living through that dry season and the word of the prophet said, dig the ditches and dig them deep because the rains are coming and they will fill those ditches. So sometimes it's a season to dig and dig and dig and persist. And other times, it's a, it's a, a wake up call to say, okay, I need some prayer and fasting. I need some more solitude measured with some community. And I need to put out, if I go through seasons like that, I will cut off anything but worship music. I will stop reading the news. I will stop reading any other book. I will, I will slow down everything else so that the only voice that I'm hearing is God's. And then I'll, I'll be patient. One of the greatest lessons of my life is being patient. And when I was a young man in my early 20s, that was like impossible, right? And I had so many people, Ben, you just got to be patient. I would get patient. There, think about how many times in Scripture do we see wait on the Lord? So sometimes it's a season. Sometimes it's about how much activity you have. Sometimes it's about distraction. Sometimes it's about things that are clouding your vision, clogging up your spiritual ears. And it can be, let's, let's be real, it can be a demonic attack. Our enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And what does he want more than anything else is to inhibit your relationship with God directly. So what you don't want to do is make a life-changing decision in that kind of season. We've talked before about how life-changing decisions should include three factors. The Word of God and what it clearly says. Your subjective hearing God's voice. And third, mature godly counsel from a select few people. Now all of those are laid out in Scripture and in history. But you don't want to make a life-changing decision when you're in a dry season. And you want to cultivate, it's about cultivating your heart and where your heart is at. That's good. Okay. We'll turn to the Word, and I just want, want you to know that whether it be uh, today face-to-face or via text, phone, email, whatever, I'm happy to do whatever I can to answer uh, any questions. As I was uh, praying for you and uh, thinking about everything that's going on and 
um, I really felt that this was not a morning for us to revisit what we talked about last Sunday or what was in the email this week, but this was a Sunday for us to kind of come back to fundamentals, read the scripture, and let God speak to us through the scripture. In particular, I want to, we talked a little bit last week, we referred to the, the classic teaching of Imago Day. we are created in the image of God, and today I want to talk about life on mission, the Missio Dei. Everyone in this room, we are called, we are created, we are designed to live our life on mission, okay? So first, though, I'm going to go back to Imago Dei. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And um, against my usual practice, not going to have all these passages on the screen. There are Bibles at the back of the room if you'd like an extra one. For you don't, you can sit a little closer to someone next to you. I'm going to read from the, the New Living this morning. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now let's turn to the back of the book, Revelations chapter 7. I should have bookmarked these. (laughs) Revelations chapter 7, and let's read verses 9 through 10. Revelations chapter 7. Verses 9 through 10. After this, this is John writing, this is the revelation of Jesus. After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a mighty shout, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now, uh, you would hear me refer to this a couple of times a year at least, but I want to briefly refer to some sound biblical teaching. God created us in His image, every human being. Okay? The word race primarily is a social construct used for negative reasons. I'm not trying to be a vocabulary neatnik, but just for the sake of good, sound, biblical teaching. Ethnicity, your ethnos, speaks to the unique features of who you are, okay? Joe's parents both born in India, right? Anna's father is white. Her mom is from Colombia. There's a mixed ethnicity, right? Everyone looks at Anna. They can't figure out, where are you from? Okay. I look at Joe like, I don't know who you, you, you know, yeah, right? So different ethnicity, right? Ethnicity is a good, healthy thing to refer to. Ethnicity is different than culture. Culture is the stuff we swim in, the books we read, the musics, the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the Pokemons we play. Is there one here? I don't know. Don't check. All right. Culture is that that we swim in that we share in common. Right? Now, in this room, honestly, I can't just talk about the ravens. I can, and some of you would just be amused or indifferent. 
right? We don't all share the culture of Ravens football, right? So there's, there's a, there's cultural uniqueness. But in this room, we share, we have more in common culturally than we have different. Does that make sense? Okay. Now within culture, we have education, we have economic, we have different differences there, right? And in our church, we have adults with a fourth grade education and we have PhDs. So there's educational difference, there's an economic difference. I had to learn as an adult that I wasn't comfortable around wealthy people because I grew up poor. Well, I had to sort out those issues, right? So a better, healthier description of what people have used to call race, they've kind of tried to combine culture and ethnicity, and it's not healthy, and it's almost entirely used as a negative construct. Now, listen, you can use the word race, it's okay, but let's just have some clarity. And what we understand as a church is that there is no one ethnicity that is more valuable than the next. Now, indeed, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and right... The Hebrew nation has a relationship with Yahweh that's a little bit unique, right? But all that aside, they are not more valuable than me, the Norwegian Cherokee Euro Mutt, (laughs) right? They are not. Does that make sense? So there's no one ethnicity that's more important than another, and that's really important for us to understand, and it's really important for us to unpack where we have ethnic pride that's not healthy or cultural pride. To whom do I feel more superior? To whom do I feel inferior? There's no place in the world than this, the church, your spiritual community, that is better for us to unpack those things, be honest about them, and ask for some help. So, for example, Joe keeps me in check that I don't slip into a Bollywood accent and make stupid racist jokes. I don't think I've done that, but right, but we, but we help each other. We help each other out, right? I have some black friends that prefer African-American. I have others that that irritates them. We help each other. Does that make sense? The most important thing is that what we see at the very end of the book, what do we see in Revelations chapter 7? All ethnicities together before the throne. That is God's design. And it's really important that if you call yourself a Jesus follower, you are clear on what is God's design. What is his purpose? Does it mean that white people don't get to lead worship in heaven? Okay, I'm glad some of you still have your sense of humor connected. The really important thing for us as a multicultural church, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, is that we don't take the ring off. We are married to each other. We make a covenant promise to each other that we will love each other. When you call this your home church... We make a promise to each other that we will love each other and when we help each other. And when someone chooses to step off the playing field and walk away and stop returning phone calls, they're taking the ring off. And Jesus will hold them accountable because Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church. We're created in his image. Now, there's good news. Okay, I don't have time to turn to each of these, so I'm going to quote them. You should know them. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. All. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus explaining it in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, life on mission. Jesus, when asked, 
what from the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, what's the most important thing in the Old Testament? When Jesus is asked that question, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40 is where we get what some people call the great commandment. And this is relevant to how we respond to world events today. It's relevant. When Jesus is asked what's the most important thing in God's word, this is his response. Love God with all you've got. And love others the same way you take care of yourself. When you're hungry, get food. When you're naked, put some clothes on. When you have a bill, pay it. Love others the same way you take care of yourself. If humanity followed this, none of these tragic events of the last two weeks would have occurred. Are you with me? And three weeks ago, we looked at his instruction about peacemakers. If we would just follow Jesus, this stuff wouldn't happen. Love God with all you've got and love others the same way you take care of yourself. And then in Matthew 28, he says something that I think a lot of people that call themselves Christians in the United States do not do and ignore. And they say, oh, that's for the professionals. And when they stand before Jesus, they'll give an account for Matthew chapter 28. After Jesus has come back to life, over 500 people have seen him. He's been around for over a month. He's about to do a rocket man up into the sky. And he says this. And what's so important is that we saw their response and their response to these words changed human history. God, yes, but also their response. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, he says, Go to people of all ethnos, is the word Jesus uses. That means where you live, people of different culture, different ethnicity, and beyond where you live. Go, urge as many people as possible to become followers of me. That's Jesus' instruction. So when I ask myself, where is God? What can I do? My concern is that we have been lulled to sleep to a Christianity that says it's all about me and how I feel and discovering what I should do. I propose to you this morning that it has a lot more to do with if you are discovering what God is already doing and following that. That's where we can have joy. That's where we can have joy. And what he said is go and urge as many people as possible to become followers of Jesus. That's what he said. Now, how do we know? Because we see then in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47, that they became fully devoted followers of Jesus. Let's turn there. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. This is an important for us to have an understanding. I believe there are a lot of people that experience some frustrations because they don't have clarity in their life about what is this Jesus thing all about. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, 
Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. We don't see that anymore. St- sorry. Strongly urging, strongly, we, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. You know, there's more than 3,000 people that live within 14 blocks of where we're sitting. All the believers, wait, wait, the crazy ones, the professional ones, the ones that had titles. No, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, which we just did, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. We talked about that last week. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, a public place, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now we unpacked this passage piece by piece uh, a number of times in the past, as it's essential to how we understand how we do church, so I'm not going to fully unpack it right now. But the point is what we see is that they were fully devoted followers of Jesus. Fully devoted, all of them threw themselves in. They were clearly identified, those people are different. And later on is when we see that those people were identified as, oh, you're trying to be a mini Jesus, you're a mini, which is where we get the word Christian, right? Because they were easy for an outsider, it was easy for an outsider to identify them, they're different. They're fully devoted of Jesus. Here's how that looks. This is a phrase I want us to get in our system. Live like Jesus, share his love. Live like Jesus, share his love. Whatever the question that you are asking about your response to current events, the answer is here. Live like Jesus, share his love. Yeah, it's that simple. Live like Jesus, share his love. I am determined that we will not be a church that is known for what we are against. We will be known as a church for what we are for. What are we for? I want to have a few of you answer me there. In a good way, as a church, what what are we for? Changed lives. Jesus, salvation. What was it that everyone was singing? Salvation from the Lamb. Changed lives. Changed lives for the better. What else? What are we for? Community. That's right. That's right. We are for community. We're for a sense of community. We're for sharing our changed lives with each other. 
sharing our homes with others, insiders and outsiders, right? A sense of community, a sense of welcome to be inclusive and not exclusive, right? Right? That's, that's what we're for. That's what we're for. What else? What are, what are we for? What's that? Yeah, an open heart, an honesty, an authenticity, a transparency. This is a place where you come. This is not a place to fake it. This is a place for us to come and to love each other with openness. What are we for? Let's turn to Romans chapter 14 and verse 7. Romans chapter 14 and verse 7. Sorry, it should be 17. It's a typo on my fault. Romans 14, 17. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink. Now this context was where there was an argument about what they should eat or drink. And so this is really important today. This is relevant today. If he, if he was writing it today, he would say to us, the kingdom of God is not about what you argue about. The kingdom of God is not about what you eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness, or most of your older translations would say righteousness, which is a Greek word, a catch-all to define a healthy relationship in right standing with God and with others. A healthy relationship in right standing with God and with others. Righteousness, living a life of goodness, and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There comes that word again. Righteousness, peace, and joy. So what is it that people should say about us that we are for? That righteousness, peace, and joy. That's how we know that what we're doing and who we are and how we're being changed and what we sound like is close to the way it should be. People identify that, and that should include peace and joy. So, going going forward, how are we going to act? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was actually, believe it or not, not written for weddings. And it was actually not about marriage. It was actually about how Christians treat each other and outsiders. It's what it's actually about. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Now remember, this is agape love, the God kind of love word. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Do we have circumstances to endure through? Yes. Has there ever been a day where it's more important for us to believe the best? For us to be patient? For us to be kind? 
for us to keep no record of us being wronged? We, if there's any hashtag I use, it's love gives. Because the easiest way to discern the difference between a God kind of love and a selfish, twisted kind of love is lust gets, love gives. When I say I love you, what should be in that mix is I am giving to you. Some of us have been broken and affected because when people have said, I love you to us, what they meant was, I will take from you. God wants to come and bring healing in our hearts from those things and to help us understand a healthy definition of how God's love works so that when we receive his love, we receive that his love gives to us so that in His love we can give His love to others. And that's not from a source that is limited. I want to read this to you. We are His church. We are unstoppable and unshakable. We have an abundantly available source of love, patience, kindness, mercy, joy, faithfulness, and goodness to offer in dark times. We are light in the midst of darkness. We will be the church without spot or wrinkle, unmarred and on full display. We will not be exclusive or divisive. We will respond with faith, hope, love, prayer, conversation, peace, and action. There's healing in Jesus. There's hope in His church. And there's power-filled help from His Spirit in this time of need. You are a part of the spotless bride of Christ. You are the head and not the tail. You are victorious and not defeated. And just like Paul wrote about in Corinthians... As a jar of clay, though we have cracks, though we have issues, when we are pressed, when we are pushed down, we are not defeated. We will not be shaken because we have His treasure in these jars of clay. When we give love to others, it is from an abundant supply. Don't try to love with your love. Give His love away. I want to bring a prayer to your attention as we draw to a close. I talked last week, and I believe that so important for us to grow in the area of praying for other people. I know that many of us have never done that before, and it's scary, it's intimidating. Uh, maybe there's pride that's in the way. Maybe there's brokenness that's in the way. But God wants you, if you're a Jesus follower, to pray for other people. Sometimes in private and sometimes in public. And what I'm saying to you, if you call me pastor, is that God is calling us to do it more in public. And to ask boldly for things that are miracles. Big, specific things that are miracles. And to remember that it is God who does the heavy lifting and not us. It's not up to us. It's only up to us to ask in faith. And a big part of that is that we need healing on the issue of if we're praying for other people. 
So you see the prayer here that I'd like for you to even pray internally yourself today. Lord, please help me to be more aware of the people you've put in my life. Please help me faithfully love them, help them, and be a faithful display of your love for them. Thank you for this opportunity today. Isn't that good? Let's stand and I'll just pray as we close. And if you're here today and you'd like to receive prayer, you can feel free uh, to come up. Happy to pray for you today. But let's just ask God for help as we go into this new week. Lord, I thank you so very much that you are for us. I thank you so very much that we can depend on you, that you are trustworthy. I thank you so very much that as we deal with the discouragement, the disappointment, the anger, the hopelessness, the tragedy of what's going on in our world, that we can come to you and that you never run out and that in whatever state we are in, you are good. That you haven't lost control, that you haven't run out of ideas, that you are not the source of evil, you are the source of good. I thank you, Lord God, that you are alive today and that your love is from an abundant source. Help us heal our hearts. Give us courage. Help us to go into this week ready to ask for your help, ready to ask that you would pour your love out on those that you have put around us. Help us to ask ourselves, where has God put me and what has God asked me to do? Lord, as we draw close to you, I'm asking that this week we would see miracles and answers to prayer. I thank you for it today, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.